Hello, I'm Will. Welcome to ResearchPod. Will podcasting and social media replace journals and traditional science communication? No. But that is the possibly provocative title of a paper by Dr. Matthew Fox and a team at Boston University School for Public Health. And to peek behind the curtain of things here at ResearchPod, as soon as I saw it, I just had to speak to Matt and find out more about what he thinks of the future for online research communications, what kind of opportunities and risks there are for engaging with professional and public audiences through social media, and to what extent the future really is digital. Matt, hello. Hello. Thanks very much for joining us. By way of introduction, could you maybe tell me and everyone listening at home a little bit about yourself, some of your professional and podcasting background? Yeah, so uh, Matt Fox, I'm a professor of epidemiology and global health that is epidemiology, particularly focused on uh, HIV and issues around improving access to and and outcomes from HIV care in, in South Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa in general. But I also have a, a, a keen interest in uh, epidemiology and epidemiologic methods. And it was through that you know, desire to work on better communicating both epidemiologic methods, but just epidemiology in general, which has become such a, such a hot topic now that we're in the coronavirus pandemic that got me into uh, podcasting and and social media and and trying to use those to communicate what you know I think are um, really interesting topics but can sometimes be fairly complex um, and we try to break those down and make it simpler for people. And when we say social media, that's a pretty big topic. What kind of channels, what networks are we talking about specifically here? Yeah, in terms of social media, it's really I'm really talking about Twitter. Uh, you know, I'm I use Facebook for for personal but not for professional uh and so it's it's really comes down to Twitter being the the main social media channel that I'm using and it's become uh the go-to medium for communicating about uh the pandemic and therefore you know it's the majority of where I spend my time I started off using Twitter well before the pandemic and was using it largely to communicate with the the rest of the epidemiology community. But, you know, once the the pandemic took off, there became this interest in epidemiologists' opinions on what to do about the pandemic. And so that sort of led to trying to use the platform to try and counter some of the myths and disinformation that's out there. And boy, howdy, has there been plenty of both. Now, my personal background is in science communication and digital media and it feels like disinformation is at an all-time visibility peak whether that's an all-time content peak if there's more coming out rather than just more that's being louder i'm not so sure in terms of intentional misinformation and and, and strategizing around you know how to spread misinformation and disinformation uh, i i would certainly agree with you i think it is because we haven't had the platform and the technology to be able to to spread it but i mean there is there's a ample evidence that the um the groups that are anti-vaccination have been intentionally using the coronavirus uh, pandemic as an opportunity to sow distrust in in all vaccines um 
and have been very, very strategic about using social media to to do that. So I would certainly agree with you. I think we are at, at certainly at the the all time high in terms of intentional spread of misinformation. For the day to day perspective of an epidemiologist, perhaps listening to this, I have been wondering to what extent is the digital realm, those social media interactions, what people are facing in the clinic, actually dealing with human beings rather than, you know, the face of the Twitter icons. Yeah, I think this is a, it's a really interesting thing because the more time you spend on social media, uh, the more you can be convinced that everything you see on social media is representative of the larger world that we live in. And to a certain extent, it certainly is. But I think we also a bit overestimate how much influence it has. You know, you can see one post that contains misinformation and you can be led to believe that, you know, everything out there is misinformation, that everyone is seeing it and everyone is believing it. And that's probably not true. On the other hand, we certainly know that, you know, when, uh, you know, healthcare providers are interacting with um, with their those in their care, they are certainly encountering much more of the, I heard this on, you know, I heard it on Twitter, I saw it on Facebook uh, type uh, responses to attempts to give people good information around, you know, the vaccines or, you know, social distancing, protecting yourself from COVID and all of those things. So um, it is definitely having an impact on on actual behavior. I, I just think we don't know exactly how much yet. I remember seeing a statistic, this was a couple of years ago now, so it might not be as true as it was then, that only actually about 7% of the entire world is actually on Twitter, and that really helped kind of ground my own personal use of social media, like, this does not represent all of the world. I think there's some truth to that. Of course, I do think that, you know, even if uh, a person is not on Twitter, they're often hearing you know, connecting with people who who are getting information from social media. I, I I don't want to limit it just to Twitter because Facebook has a probably an even larger role that it's playing in terms of spreading misinformation currently. So I don't think that it's the reach is only amongst those who are directly getting their information from the platform. I think it's radiating out from those who are on the platform to those who are not on the platform. But I, I certainly do agree that we probably think it's it's having a bit more of, of an influence than it is, and it is definitely worth keeping that in mind. The paper that led me to you and your work and your podcast from the American Journal of Epidemiology was looking at whether social media and podcasting could replace journals or traditional media, and if not, then what kind of role they could play. And to kind of cut through to the quick of it, there was the three key reasons for why an epidemiologist should be on social media or be engaged. And I wonder if you could just tell the audience at home a little bit about the paper and the lessons from it. Yeah, so uh, I have been working with a number of colleagues over the past few years uh, on trying to just sort of be thoughtful about what we're all doing on social media and whether or not we think, you know, social media is actively changing the way that people are communicating with colleagues and communicating with the general public. And 
I encounter a lot of colleagues in the world of, of science, but in particular in, in the world of epidemiology, who are, are still not on social media and are pretty skeptical of it because they think of social media as just a den of negativity and a place that is, you know, sort of full of cruelty and and why would you ever want to get involved in that? And and you know, of course there is, you know, there is absolutely truth to that. And we talk about in this in this paper the the ways in which social media is, has been used for harassment and and uh, particularly for minoritized communities and scientists from minoritized backgrounds who are you know experiencing a lot of harassment. But at the same time, I think that failing to get involved in social media and engaging with the conversations is you know is really leaving um, some people behind because they don't want to to get involved. So, you know, social media is now where many of the conversations around the most current methodologic developments are going on within my field, but I suspect within most fields in in scientific uh, academia, beyond academia really, but, you know, within the scientific community. For those of us who are in, in institutions that are you know, smaller um, that are are you know not the the very very you know large research institutions getting access to those who are the leading scholars in the field you know was was typically a very a difficult thing to do. You really could only do that at academic conferences, or maybe you reach out by email and are lucky enough to get somebody's attention. Or maybe you write something and and somebody responds sort of through the journal system. But that is all changing very rapidly. And now a lot of these conversations are happening much faster and they're happening on social media, which means that, you know, if you are, let's say you're a a student in a field and you're not at one of these, um, you know, within my field, you know, sort of the top four or five institutions, you can now still access and and understand the conversations and the type of discussions that are going on at those institutions, even from far away. And so I think what we're doing with social media is we're, we're democratizing that information. At the same time, we're also opening that up to a, a much broader set of views, and we're opening it up to the to the public. You know, not everything that we talk about in within our, our field is, is something that's going to be of, of interest to the general public. But, you know, often academics can get mired down in minutiae that probably don't have a great impact on people's lives. And if, you know, epidemiology is really a, a social movement that is designed to improve health, then ultimately we need to be, you know, responsible to the, the general public, not just to our, ourselves. And so getting additional feedback from the general public, I think, you know, only helps us in making sure that what we are doing is grounded in the real needs of what people are experiencing in their daily lives. And with that flat access within institutions, between institutions, and from public accessibility to those institutions or to those researchers, there is, coming back to something that we mentioned before, the balance of risk and reward that there are those opportunities, but there are also possibly some risks of misinterpretation, willful or otherwise. I guess, are there any cautions for aspiring science communicators or epidemiologists who are thinking about dipping their toe into the pool of social media? 
how to best kind of manage expectations around that? Yeah, it's it's such a great question. I mean, because many of us are quite used to communicating with our colleagues in a way that is, you know, fairly informal and, you know, Twitter uh, and social media kind of increases that. We're often making sort of jokes that when you know somebody are are perfectly fine because they they know the spirit in which you are communicating, but can come off as quite harsh to anybody who is is not familiar. And certainly if you are using humor, which is so difficult to communicate, or sarcasm, which, you know, is we can argue that there's there's very little benefit to being sarcastic or dismissive in social media because it always is going to lead to hurt feelings, even if it's not the the person you're you're sort of directly being sarcastic to. And then if you're just sort of using it as a way to be dismissive about the way that things are being communicated, let's say around COVID and the disinformation that's being spread, you know, all you end up preaching to the to the choir in a sense. You you sort of you know the people who are already convinced. Um, you know, love to hear you make smarky comments about misinformation, but does it really help those who are really trying to sort out what is fact from from fiction? I, I suspect it probably doesn't. So um, I think you have to go into it thinking of everything that you post in the way that it is truly for public consumption, even though you may intend it to be a conversation within a, a select community of of you know, say, academics who may understand a lot of what you're talking about, you do just have to be very aware of the fact that, you know, the general public can and will read this. And so even though you may not want to communicate everything in a way that is specifically designed and targeted towards a, a lay audience, um, you have to be very aware that the lay audience may be paying attention and, you know, may interpret things that you say in a way that is very different from the way you mean it. I also think, you know, you'd have to be very careful in just sort of thinking through anything that you say online is probably going to be heard by different groups of people very differently. And therefore, you know, trying to be as clear in your communication as you possibly can should be part of the goal of any social media interaction. That's a really difficult thing to do, of course, because you're you're very limited in the in Twitter on the on the character length that you can put into a tweet. You can Tweet Twitter threads, but honestly, most people are only going to read the first few. And then, you know, let's say you say something that is not quite what you meant. Um, you can, of course, always go back and adjust what you say by clarifying later on. But often it's too late at that point. People will hear the the first thing you say if it gets, you know, interpreted in a light that you didn't mean it, or I shouldn't say interpreted, it probably was poorly communicated if, if people heard it that way. The initial tweet is the one that people are going to see and remember, and they're often never going to see your your correction. And you see this all the time. You see often people critiquing, let's say, those whose opinions on, let's say, you know, for example, masks at the beginning of the pandemic were in support of then government policies on not needing to, to mask. Um, who then came back and very, very clearly said, I was wrong, I was wrong. People don't hear the, I was wrong. What they hear was, you were wrong in the beginning, and it never really took back that position. So you do have to be very careful. You know, science is something that tends to evolve over time when we're in a situation like we're in now, but you don't really have that luxury to to change your opinion and have everybody hear it. So you do have to just be be very careful about the way you communicate. 
But in terms of walking that line and reaching either underserved audiences or people whose parking conversations could be taken combatively, instead of just you know dunking on them with a viral tweet, do you have any success stories or kind of standout moments in the past couple of months, the last year and a half on Twitter or through the podcast where you have surprised yourself or maybe surprised the audience with how a message has been communicated well? It's an interesting question because I think that often we don't we don't really we don't really know when we're communicating well because the the feedback often comes when we're communicating poorly. In some sense, what I think people do is they look at a message being, you know, liked a lot and and shared a lot as a sign that they uh, have communicated well. But I I think that's actually probably a a poor approach to trying to to determine that because uh, often things that are getting liked or or shared a lot are getting liked or shared just because people agree with the the sentiment, not because it it communicated it in a way that was particularly effective. So you know I think. It's tough to to share probably success stories. It's much easier to identify the times when you know things went went poorly because that's when you get the the most feedback, you get the most pushback and the most um, you know critique. I, I do think that when when something that you have spent a, a lot of time on thinking through very clearly about how you want to communicate gets to a fairly large audience, it is. It's certainly gratifying in the sense that um, you know you are trying your best to get really good information to people, and while you don't know exactly what the the impact is, you do know that it's it's getting in front of a lot of eyeballs in ways that it wouldn't if you just expressed this in a you know in a, an academic article or um, you know gave a talk somewhere. It's it's really reaching a much larger audience. So. I would say that you know the ways in which um, we typically focus on the the, the sort of the Twitter metrics um, can be a, a pretty mixed bag, but you know it's it's certainly an indication of of reach, even if it's not an indication of of necessarily really good communication. And for any epidemiologist listening to this who wanted to get involved, there's lots of different ways you can measure something, and lots of different kind of yardsticks for success. For the ones who are reluctant to engage with social media for many good reasons, some of them not so good, like the attitude of either I'm too busy or, you know, I'm a senior lecturer at somewhere, I have comms teams for that, I have interns for that. Is there something that you would like to have acknowledged or something that you'd like to reach to those people and say, here is why you should care or how to build those investments into a communication strategy for a department or for a project? It's a really important thing because you're right that, you know, certainly some people have communications teams that, you know, do a lot of the marketing of the of the research. But ultimately, what we want to do is engage in, in conversations with people because we know Public Health 101 that just giving people information is not enough to change behavior much of the time, that it, you you need to give people good information but you also you know, need to help support them in making the decisions that ultimately we think will lead to better health. Um, and so it's a, it's a process. It's not a, a, a one-way street. I think that the best thing that people can do 
is just to open up a, a, a Twitter account and start following people that they are interested in and with no commitment in any way to, to actually engage in. But that what that does is it allows you to see the kinds of communications that are going on and then make an informed decision as to whether or not you want to engage. Um, you know, I think some people, for them, that will be enough to get them going and to jump in. Um, for other people, you know, there will be a, a, a certainly they'll look at the the negativity that's on social media and just say, I, I don't want to get involved in that. And that's that's perfectly fine. Um, but at least then you have a, a really informed you know opinion about what the medium can can do when you look at the ways that other you know senior researchers and senior public health officials are using the platform to engage with the the larger community. So I you know I think it's it's really part of the responsibility of being in public health is to communicate effectively, and therefore there is you know right now no better way to do that than through social media. The title of the paper, again, that led me to was Will Podcasting and Social Media Replace Journals in Traditional Science Communication? No, but. The lingering question there, that ellipsis of what part they play in the future. I wonder if you had any ideas of, you know, either an idealized future or something that people should be wary of and try to avoid in their communication strategy. So the traditional way that, that scientists communicate is through journal publications. It's the, you know, it's a form of, of currency amongst academics is getting your paper published in the very high impact journal. But there, there is so much consternation right now within the scientific community around um, the failings of that academic journal system in a number of different ways, partly in that it's the ivory tower mentality of I put it in a journal and then it's everybody else's job to communicate it and, and you know, figure out what it means and how important it is which I think is is a fairly outdated approach. But on top of that, I think there's also a feeling that journals historically were seen as the arbiters of what is both important science and, and good science. And I think, you know, the, the pandemic has taught us that that, that is definitely not uh, always the case and that there are a lot of failings with the current system. As, as several people have pointed out on social media, if you were designing a system for determining what is good science and then how to get it out to the academic and the lay community. The journal system that we have now is not what you would design today. It's a, it's a legacy of, of, of history when, you know, the internet didn't exist and we didn't have other ways to effectively communicate. So if you were building it now, you, you wouldn't build it this way. And I think that social media is having a strong influence on changing the way that journals are operating and helping determine whether the the current system that we have for for journals is is what we will have in the future. We were writing this in a journal, so we wanted to talk about the influence on journals and science communication. Social media is also changing the way that we teach students. Academia is changing because of social media. There's much more access to information about how to teach better or also just, you know, uh, information students can access on their own. Do we think that the model where you know, students come into a classroom, get lectured to for an hour, and then go home and read reading after reading is the best approach? You know, do we want to think about listening to podcasts or, or watching online videos 
are a better way for students to access information than the traditional sort of lecture-based format. I think all of this is going to change in the future. And I think it's going to be driven by conversations that happen on social media because, you know, again, the 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 rapid um, post-publication review of journal articles is now happening on Twitter. You will get the 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 really quick feedback on all of the most important uh, and influential publications that are coming out through conversations on Twitter, and you'll get them in a much more nuanced way than you will if you wait for someone to write the letter to the editor that may be months down the road when you've already forgotten about the the publication. So, you know, I, I think we can be pretty certain that, that social media is going to change um, academia in general over over the next decade. Um, exactly how, I, I think we don't we don't know for sure, but I think academia 10 years from now is going to look very different from the way that it does now because of this much more free access to both information and communication. Fingers crossed it's not going the way that Twitter is going and everything is either pornography, spam, or American politics. Let's hope. Let us hope that is not what it turns into. <laughs> oh, Matt, thank you so much for your time this morning. If people like what they've heard from you and want to hear more about your podcast and your research, what would be the best way for them to find you online or through any other means? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter at, at Prof Matt Fox. Uh, and I tend to you know, tweet out a lot of the things that we have going on. And I also have uh, two different podcasts that you can look up. So Free Associations Podcast. You have to Google Free Associations Podcast in order to find it. But it's a, a podcast that we do that is a, a journal club podcast looking at kind of the, the most recent big uh, health studies. And, and we critique them and, and talk them through. Uh, and then I have a second podcast, which is called Serious Epidemiology. That's one much more targeted towards epidemiologists and epidemiologic methods, but both are out there on the web and you can, you can find either of them with a quick Google search. 